I know many of you have seen uh, the, the famous uh, BBC uh, series, The Blue Planet, particularly maybe even The Blue Planet 2, the one um, uh, that was most recently on. Uh, but I wonder, I'm, I'm, I expect most of you don't know just the sheer amount of work that went in to produce that documentary. Um, according to my, my limited research this, this week, uh, it took four years to film that series. Uh, it took ex- 135 expeditions to over 39 countries. Uh, it took over 6,000 hours of filming. Uh, over six, sorry, over 4,000 dives. Um, but as I read a little bit about uh, from the team uh, this week, uh, one thing that the team said, those cast, crew, divers, cameramen and women, uh, producers, uh, what they said as they went around the whole planet uh, filming and producing that show, one thing that they saw on almost every single dive was, f- wherever they were in the world, was floating plastic was floating plastic fishing lines, sweet wrappers, plastic bottles. And they were so disturbed by what they saw that actually when they were putting together the show, they decided to make the last final episode to be themed around the damage that is being caused to the planet by human beings. Um, if any of you have seen the show or seen that final episode, I know some of you are nodding your heads, some of you have seen it, there's some quite distressing footage in it. There's a, a, a little sequence about a hawksbill turtle who gets caught in a plastic bag. Uh, that particular turtle was rescued by the cameraman, but, uh, that's, but so many creatures in our world are, are not so fortunate. They don't get to be rescued like that. And there was particular, I found moving myself, one particular sequence which showed that because of the plastic contamination uh, in, our, in our waters, how some whales, particularly whale calves, are being poisoned because of con- their, their mother's milk being contaminated. Uh, and you see these whales mourning the loss of a little baby calf. Um, And again, this was quite powerfully expressed and powerfully put uh, in the documentary. Here's some statistics for you. It should appear on the screen. Uh, Some statistics from uh, the UN uh, Environmental Programme, which uh, estimates that for for every square mile on average, for every square mile of ocean, uh, on our planet today, there's over 46,000 pieces of floating plastic. Um, we read that over 12 million tons of rubbish has been, enters our oceans for the first time every single year. Uh, that results in over, um, again, over a million birds uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, mammals and sea creatures that die as a result of eating or being tangled uh, in plastic. And at the end of the episode, David Attenborough said these words. They should appear on the screen uh, behind me. For years, we thought the ocean was so vast and the inhabitants so infinitely numerous that nothing we could do could have an effect upon them. But now we know that was wrong. 
It is now clear our actions are having a significant impact on the world's ocean. They are under threat now as never before in human history. Many people believe the oceans have reached a crisis point. And then he concludes by saying this. Surely we have a responsibility to care for our blue planet, the future of humanity, and indeed all life on earth now depends on us. And of course the ocean is only part of the problem, only part of the problem uh, because of the resources that we have uh, depleted without restraint for, for centuries now. Uh, made all the more accelerated. The problems are all the more accelerated by rapid population growth with a a rapid demand, an increasing demand for for energy. Uh, We have seen, um, because of industrialization, we have seen our sea and our air and our land contaminated with, with chemical, biological, and even nuclear waste. Um, And Although there's, there's massive debate over whether of, of the extent and the significance of global warming and what causes it or how much of a part we play in it, nevertheless, all things considered, when you look at the air and the atmosphere and the ocean and the land, I think it's fair to say that we are in, a, in an environmental crisis at the minute. And the big question is how should Christians respond to that? How should Christians respond? Um, Well, there are quite a few Christians out there who effectively say we shouldn't really bother with the world. We shouldn't really get involved. Uh, When Jesus comes again, this world's all going to pass away. And so is it not a little bit like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? So so don't bother. Don't bother. This world's all going to pass away anyway. Um, let it all go. And so someone like a famous evangelist like D.L. Moody said, that he said these words, I look upon this world as a sinking ship and the Lord has given me a lifeboat and told me, Moody, save all you can. And while we, we don't want to take away anything from uh, Moody's desire to, to reach people with the good news about Jesus, of course that's right, absolutely right. But his assumption is that this world is beyond redemption and all that we should focus on are saving souls. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning, as we look at Genesis chapter 2, that that view that the world is doomed and so we shouldn't bother with it anymore anyway doesn't square with the message of Genesis 2 that we read here. And I want to try, I want to try to give you three reasons why we should passionately work for uh, the care and conservation of this planet. Three reasons. Number one, the earth is created by God. The earth is created by God. Now, two weeks ago, if you were with us, we, as we looked at Genesis chapter 1, we considered uh, and looked at the, the views of many people that believe that this world is here as an accident, purely as an accident, the result of impersonal forces and chance and time. 
that the universe exploded without any creator, without any conscious guiding hand. The universe exploded just randomly into being from a single point about 13.7 billion years ago. Um, we considered last two weeks ago why that actually um, is not actually the, 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 a, a very good way, not a very even scientific way uh, to explain this world. Um, Dar- Darwinian, strict Darwinian evolution thinks uh, just through a random series of mutations uh, that life has just randomly evolved. Again, no creator, no guiding hand. But if you were here two weeks ago, we did consider that that actually doesn't adequately, that view that we're here by an accident purely, doesn't actually make sense of the world that we, we live in. It doesn't, that view doesn't adequately explain why there is something from nothing. That view does not adequately explain why there is order from chaos, why there is conscious life from non-living matter. That view just cannot adequately explain those things. In fact, uh, I argued two weeks ago that it actually takes more faith to believe in that explanation of the world than the view that Genesis 1 and 2 gives us. Because Genesis 1 and 2, even verse 1 of the Bible, the first sentence of the Bible, the dramatic opening words, uh, gives a, challenges that view, strongly, strongly disagrees with that view that we're here by an accident. No, no, the Bible says, the writer Moses, the writer of Genesis says, no, we are here by the intentional design of an eternal all-powerful, personal God. However God did it, however God did it, uh, we are here by his design and intention. And he has created a good and beautiful world that reflects something of his glory. And I want to suggest that because God has done that, Because this world is good, because this world is beautiful, because this world does reflect his glory, then we should be concerned to look after it. First, God created uh, this world, and his creation is good. His creation is good. Now, there's many philosophies, Greek philosophy uh, traditionally, and many Eastern religions that put a big divide between the spiritual and the physical. Uh, there are many who believe that uh, the, the physical is bad, evil. Uh, it's a prison to be escaped. Um, there are many who believe that if you want to connect with the divine, you want to get in touch with the divine, then you have to distance yourself as much as possible with the, from the physical in this world. And I want to suggest to you that that sort of thinking has often seeped into or infiltrated uh, the Christian church. And there have been many through the history of uh, Christianity who have believed exactly that. If you want to be holy, uh, you want to connect with the divine, then you need to distance yourself from the physical pleasures of this world. That's what it looks like to be holy uh, and divine. And we can think, our, well, we can think of, of monks and nuns who have tried to do that. Um, worn scratchy clothes, ate bread and water almost exclusively, were celibate. Um, but 
That is not the teaching of the Bible. That is not the teaching of the Bible. And we see that even here uh, in the first uh, two chapters of the book of Genesis, repeatedly stressed in Genesis 1 uh, in particular, is that this world, this physical world that God has made, is good, is good. We're, that's repeated in, in verse in verse uh, 10, in verse 12, in verse 18. And then we come to the climactic statement that, that Eddie read for us a few moments ago. Verse 31, if you've got your Bible open, verse 31, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, we live uh, this side of uh, Genesis 3 and the fall of our parents. Our first parents rebelled against God. And as we'll see in a few moments, that had massive consequences for their relationship with God, relationship with each other, and the relationship with the world. We live now in in a world under the curse that is broken in some ways. But nevertheless... Much of the good in this world still remains. Much of the good in this world still remains. Um, And so when the Apostle Paul is tackling some false teachers, even in the first century, false teachers who were saying, you shouldn't get married, uh, forbidding people from eating all sorts of food, uh, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. It is to be received with thanksgiving. So even this side of the fall, we live in a world where there's so much good that we have been given by God in this physical world that we are to enjoy. Uh, this world God has made physical and he's made it good for our pleasure. Uh, God is interested not just in our souls, but he's interested in our physical bodies and in this physical world. And so I want you to see that the material world matters to God. He has designed it. He has created it. He sustains it. Um, That if we, however, neglect, abuse, or spoil this world, uh, we are damaging something that God values, that is precious to him. And so because God has made this world physical and he's made it good, it's valuable to him and therefore we should look after it. God created this world and his creation is good. Second thing I want you to see is his creation is beautiful. His creation is beautiful. Uh, A few months ago we were looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, which was... Uh, which was a difficult read in all sorts of ways, but there's some little shafts of of shining light in the book of Ecclesiastes, and here's one of them. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful uh, in its time. God has made this world beautiful, and we see that even in uh, Genesis chapter 2. Just glance down to verse 9, if you see it there, verse 9. In Genesis 2, we read that... Moses echoes the writer of Ecclesiastes here. He says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees go out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Pleasing to the eye and good for food. God did not just make the trees to be sources of food. Uh, He made them to be beautiful. God did not just make a functional world, a world that works, 
but is unattractive. Uh, God did not make trees that do their job, but he made them to be beautiful, pleasing to the eye. Um, And I think we can see that even with food, can't we? God doesn't just make food to be fuel for your body, and that's it. Uh, It has all the nutrients and vitamins and minerals, and it is necessary, all the necessary things just to nourish you and keep you alive. Uh, It does that. But food is also a wonderful thing with all the tastes and, and uh, with all the textures, with all the aromas. Uh, it doesn't, it's not just mushy fuel. It's something for us to accept and enjoy. And I think every one of us has an instinctive, aesthetic sense, a sense of the beautiful. We all have that. We all recognize that a sunset is beautiful. We all have an inbuilt appreciation for whether it's music or art or architecture or perfume or precious metals. I don't know when, you re- when Eddie read the little description of the land, uh, the, a land with, with gold and smelly resin. You know, he's described, the, when he read, Eddie described the parts of the department store that I usually vo- avoid, right? The jewelry and the perfume parts, I, I, I normally avoid that. But God has given those things for us to enjoy, enjoy. God has made this world to be beautiful. Well, what has that to do with how we look after it? Well, let me give you a silly example. Imagine it's a little boy's birthday and his very artistic, thoughtful mum decides to make him a birthday cake and to ice it uh, and take real time and thought icing it. He's a big football fan, this little boy, so she decides to ice it as a green pitch with all these little icing football players all in just the right kit uh, and all the right colors of his favorite team. Um, And then she brings it to the little boy on his birthday And without a word of thanks or appreciation, he just cuts it, cuts a slice, and starts munching. Mum would be understandably upset, I would say. You see, if that little boy just viewed that cake, this is just food, I'm not interested in what it looks like, it's just there to be consumed and not to be thanked. To, to thank the giver, not to, to appreciate the beauty and the work and the art, the artistry involved in that. That would be insulting, wouldn't it? That would be insulting. But again, that's the logic that we have in Genesis 2. God has made this world to be beautiful, to be beautiful for us to marvel at, rejoice in. Uh, God has made food in all its color and texture and flavor and aroma uh, to be enjoyed. Sex isn't merely for procreation. It's to be enjoyed inside the safety and security uh, of a marriage relationship. We are to enjoy fashion and music and art. God has given this world to enjoy. We are to spend time, we should spend time, to take a walk in creation and to enjoy the sights and the sounds uh, and the smells uh, that we see there. As we look at this world, our imagination should be fired. Our hearts should be excited by what we see uh, because we recognize that this world is made by God and made to be beautiful. And because it is beautiful, it should be treasured and appreciated 
for the masterpiece that it is. We are to uh, look after this world because it is good and valuable to God. But more than that, we're to look after this world because it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And then lastly, on this point, we are called to look after this world because it's created by God and he created it to reflect his glory, to reflect his glory. Some of you may have heard of the architect, Sir Christopher Wren. Uh, He was responsible for designing and overseeing the building of many of the the wonderful buildings uh, in London, particularly his masterpiece is uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and he is buried there. Uh, And on his tomb are written these words, Si monumentum requiris circumspice, which means, roughly translated, if you're looking for his memorial, look around you. Okay, if you're looking for his memorial, look around you. You want to see something of the hard work, knowledge, skill, genius of this man, look around you. Look at, the, look at what he has made. And that's exactly the sentiment that Eddie read for us at the beginning of our time together when he read from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. If you want to grasp something of the knowledge and the skill and the wisdom and the power and the genius and the splendor of our God, look around you, look around you. It reflects his glory. And that means if we spoil this world, we are actually obscuring God's glory in some way. And so we should look after this world. First reason we should look after the world is it's created by God. It's good, it's beautiful, and it reflects his glory. But there's a second reason that we should look after the world that God has made, made, and that is because the earth was entrusted to human beings. The earth was entrusted uh, to human beings. As soon as God creates the man and the woman, He speaks a very clear command to them. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now this, unlike much of the criticism in um, environmentalist literature, this is not a free reign for mankind. This is not a, a charter Uh, These words are not a charter that we can exploit this world, not a sanction for us to uh, deplete the resources without restraint and without thought. Um, No, this this command to look after, to develop this world is given in the context of Genesis 1, a world that God has made good and that he values. He's not in the same chapter going to tell human beings to go and wreck it and to destroy it. No, we remember last week, we are to rule and develop the potential of this world as rulers under God, the King. God is the owner and maker of it all. And yet we are to rule this world as vice regents, uh, representative rulers uh, in this world. And we see clearly spelt out in Genesis 2, uh, verse 15, which I hope, which I hope, is the answer that the kids will give to their teacher out there. What is it we're to do? What is it we're to do? 
Uh, Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord took man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. I missed a quote from John Stott there. He says this, we have no liberty then to do what we like with our natural environment. It is not ours to treat as we please. Dominion is not a synonym for domination, let alone destruction, since we hold it in trust and we are to manage it responsibly and productively. In Genesis 2, verse 15, there's two commands that we are given. Two commands that we're given. Number one, we are called, human beings are called to work the earth, to work the earth, that is to develop it to unleash the untapped potential of this world, to rearrange the resources that we've been given to make a productive world. We're called to work it, but then we're also called to take care of it. And sadly, in recent centuries, we have been really good at the first thing and really bad at the second. But here in Genesis 2, verse 15, we're called to do both together and to not privilege one over the other. We are called to work the earth, uh, to cultivate it, uh, and to make it more productive. We have seen, uh, again, massive... uh, And and as you read through, sorry, uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, and particularly chapter 5, we'll see that human beings do exactly that. And so they forge bronze and iron to make new tools. They, they make new instruments to play music. They come up with new farming techniques. They, they develop and rearrange the resources of this world to make it more fruitful. They do that. But we're also called to take care of it, to take care of it. And as I said, I think we have prioritized working over taking care. And that has led to the mess uh, that we're in You see, we've seen since the Industrial Revolution massive advances in science and technology, and they've been wonderful things. Great advances in medicine, great advances in technology, in communication and transport. Uh, And these are things to wonderfully be celebrated. But with industrialization, it has led to industrial-level pollution and contamination of, of land and of sea Uh, and of air Um, through, as I said, um, chemical, biological, and even nuclear waste. Uh, And as a result, we have caused massive damage to the world uh, that we live in. Uh, We have depleted the Earth's resources without thought uh, or restraint. I think you can see that in two very simple ways. We start to read up on some of the literature, uh, the ways that we have used and cut down trees without a thought for replenishing them, uh, for fuel and for pasture land for the increasing population. So over half the world's rainforests uh, have been chopped down, and for every 10 trees, only one is replanted. We have seen major problems, and in fact, uh, marine biologists say the single greatest threat uh, to the health of our oceans at the moment is through uh, overfishing. And so because of our greed and because of our selfish desire for, for more stuff, for more energy, for more convenience, we are leaving an 
awful legacy for our children. But more than that, uh, we are not called to be stewards of this world for our children. Ultimately, we're called to be stewards of this world for God. And we have failed in the task that God has left for us. And it's having massive consequences. And as I begin to describe all that, you might be thinking, well, what can little old me do? It's, the damage is almost done, is it not? Uh, what can I do? And the answer at one level is, you individually, not a lot, really. There's not a lot you can do. But, but, together, one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one is a whole lot of people. And if we all make the same point and we all commit ourselves to doing the same thing, we can actually make a massive difference uh, in this area. And I want to suggest that Christians should not be passive and should not be silent on this issue. One practical way in which we can make a difference is by being better consumers. Better consumers. Um, If we make it clear that we are not going to eat meat that's the product of animals that have been kept in shockingly awful conditions and we refuse to buy it and we all refuse to buy it pretty soon different products will appear on the shelves if we make it clear we're going to research and buy uh, fair trade Items Pretty soon more fair trade items will appear on the shelves. If we commit ourselves to buying local produce where we know where it's come from and we're investing in our own area and in our own economy with good farming practices, it will cost a little more for us in the short term, but it actually leads to a more healthy environment in the long term. What can we do? What are some of the practical things that we can do? If we all do a load of little things it will really make a difference. It will really make a difference. Here's some, some things that I put on the list there. If we decide to walk where we can, cycle instead of driving, if we commit to being disciplined in recycling and composting, if we switch off lights when we're not using them, uh, if we buy local produce, a couple of things we're going to try to do as a local church. I'm kind of, it's all well and good to say this stuff from the front, but... We should do it. We should do it. So I've been thinking about what we could do as a church. One thing we're going to do, and you'll notice today, uh, you haven't got a bulletin. You haven't got a bulletin. Um, We're going to print just 10, 20 of the most bulletins for those who really want it. But for the rest of you, we're going to email you on a Friday morning. You get the notices and the calendar uh, digitally. What could we do across the way? I, I was shocked to discover that, that we haven't changed it yet, but I was shocked to discover that those little cups that we get our coffee in are beeswax lined and are not recyclable. So maybe we could try to encourage one another to invest in a keep cup. See uh, Marie with her keep cup this morning. Here's an example to follow. A keep cup. You bring it along. You refill it. You can, we, we can organize something for it to be left here if you think you'll forget it. Uh, and we wash it and we reuse it. You get the idea. There's loads of little things that we can do. Um, 
conserve water. Only, only put on the dishwasher or the washing machine if it's full. You get the idea. There's loads of little things that we can do. And that, I want to suggest, is, is part of our worship to God. This is God's world that God has made to be good and beautiful, reflect his glory, a world that he has entrusted to us to look after. And we at least need to be thinking about how we can better do that. But there's a third reason. There's a third reason. And at this point, we leave Genesis 1 and 2, and we sort of trace the story through the rest of the Bible. Because there's a third reason we should look after this world, and that is because the earth will be redeemed by Christ. The earth will be redeemed like, like, uh, by Christ. And so, in many ways, D.L. Moody was wrong. This world is not a ship that's doomed, that will just sink to the bottom and be destroyed. Think of it more as a ship that is going to be reconditioned and rebuilt more beautiful than what it was before and recommissioned. Too often, I think, as Christians, as evangelical Christians, we think that salvation is, our thoughts of salvation are too small, as if God is only concerned with saving your soul for heaven. God is concerned about your soul passionately, but he is also concerned about your body and this world. The vision of salvation that the Christian has as we move to the end of the Bible story is that one day we will be reunited, our souls will be reunited with a a new resurrected body fit to live in a physical heaven, new heaven and new earth that will be remade. God is interested in this material, physical world. Um, God does... And, and the way that God does that is ultimately through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And we see the both elements uh, in the work of Christ, I think. Uh, he came to live the life that we ought to live. Died a death on, our, on the cross for, our, for the salvation of our souls. To pay the debt of our sin. But he was resurrected with a physical body. Uh, as a down payment and a glimpse and a foretaste. Uh, of the new heaven and the new earth uh, that is to come. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father at the moment. And his rule is contested and unseen now. But one day, at the end of history, he will return and his rule will be seen and uncontested by all. And on that great and final day, He will bring judgment on all his enemies and he will restore us and this world fully and finally so that it supremely, ultimately reflects the glory of God. I think Paul is talking about this very thing in Romans 8. Paul is saying that actually creation is yearning, the whole created world is yearning and longing for that future day, groaning, in fact, for that future day. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, we read that the creation awaits with eager expectation for the Son of God to be revealed. Why? Verse 20, because currently it's subjected to frustration and decay. And so the whole world has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present moment. And I think this 
awareness that we are having of the environmental crisis is our ears being tuned in to the groaning of this world. This world is groaning. That groaning, that crisis that we see should actually make us long with the world for the great and final day to come when one day all this world will be liberated from its bondage to decay and all that spoils this material world is one day no more and it gives birth to a wonderful new creation that is perfectly good, perfectly beautiful and perfectly reflects God's glory. So what should we do in the meantime? What should we do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, as Christians, we should obey the two great commandments that we've been given. Number one, we need to obey, obey the great commandment of Genesis 1 uh, and 2, to work this world and to take care of it. We need to be concerned about this world uh, and we need to do what little we can together to minimize the damage that has been caused and make this world the best place it possibly can be to live in. We need to do, work to do that. But we also need to recognize that all we can do is limit the damage. We cannot save this world. We cannot do it. We're called to be, live responsibly and to work uh, to limit the damage, but actually the hope for this world is not our recycling uh, and not our commitment to responsible fishing. The hope for this world is the return of the Lord Jesus, and because that is true, then we must also work passionately, like D.L. Moody, for the salvation of souls, to obey the great, not the great commandment of Genesis 1 and 2, but the great commission of the Lord Jesus to go and tell people to turn from their sin and to put their trust uh, in the Lord Jesus because the great and final day will be a great and terrible day. It will be a terrible day if you do not know, love, and serve the Savior. It will be a terrible day. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, wouldn't yet self-identify as a follower of Jesus, then it's my duty to give you that warning. To be ready for that final day. Come, come. He invites you to come and to know him and to accept his offer of forgiveness. Submit to his loving rule, uh, loving and wise rule for your life. And if you do that, then you have nothing to fear on that final day. In fact, for you and for us who have already done that, it will be a great day. It'll be a great day. A day when we see the Lord again, get to be with him uh, and enjoy his presence face to face. But it'll be a great day for our bodies as our bodies will be restored. All pains and aches no more. Uh, all threat of disease and death gone forever where we will run and jump and sing and swim and dance in the new heaven and the new earth. But it's also going to be a great day for the physical world, that all that is broken, all that spoils this world will be no more. And so as I finish, I just want to read the hope for the world as Isaiah speaks about it in Isaiah 55. So speaking about the great and final day, 
you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands as together we praise and serve and rejoice in the God who's our great redeemer and our great creator. Let me pray for us.